Amen. You may be seated. So, if you want digital notes, uh, here's the QR code to get that. If you're online, you can conveniently pause the video, the stream, to be able to scan that and get the notes. Uh, I think everybody in person here has physical notes, so... So, bear witness to God's kingdom coming. We all witness, whether good or bad. And we're in Revelation 11, so turn now. And we can think of Christians who have been a bad witness, right? We all know them. We can all think of times when we ourselves have not been the best witness, right? But we bear Jesus' name so no matter what we do, we witness for him for ill or for good. And so our goal always would be to be a what? A good witness, right? And we're to be a witness to God's kingdom coming. Jesus came the first time, died for us, and he is coming again. And we see this in Revelation 11, and we see God's treatment of his witnesses. So let's start there in Revelation 11, verse 1. It says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Why is he measuring? What is going on there? Well, measuring signifies either judgment or protection in Scripture. It signifies judgment or protection. The context determines which one. Here, the measurement, I believe, is protection. It's protection. So he is measuring to demonstrate protection of the temple and the worshipers, but not those outside the temple. For it is not measured, and it is trampled underfoot. So what temple could he be measuring? Well, what temple you think he measures depends on the lens that you wear. So there are four possibilities for which temple he is measuring to protect. First, the second, wow, I don't know if you'll be able to see that, but it's on your papers anyways. The second temple of John's day, which was destroyed in 70 AD. It was then being measured for destruction, for judgment, not protection. So that's the first one. And that is the lens of a preterist, right? A preterist would see that as uh, John's temple because they, they see Revelation as uh, being fulfilled by the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Second, the church as the temple of God, as illustrated in Ephesians 2, 11 through 21, which is talking about the church as God's temple. Uh, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So this would signify that the protection is of those who believe in Jesus, uh, both 
potentially the church, which encompasses Jews and Greeks or Gentiles. The third uh, is the third temple. So we know that there was the first temple, which was Solomon's temple, and then there was the second temple, which was built uh, shortly after the return of the exile, uh, expanded and improved by Herod, and then that temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and and if you are a futurist and you believe that that temple will be rebuilt, then that will be the third temple. And uh, it will be rebuilt before Christ returns. This would be a temple that Ezekiel is measuring in Ezekiel 40, which is the Old Testament base for these, this passage of the measuring of the temple. And this would signify the protection of believing Jews. And last but not least, it's the fourth, which is really a combination of two and three. The third temple, which is built before Christ's return, and it is representing both Israel and the church being preserved during God's judgment of the world, i.e. the day of the Lord. So the third temple is rebuilt. It's measured by John, and it is representing the church because we are the temple of God. But it is also representing a physical temple, which represents the Jewish people. And so it is both Israel and the church being represented as what is being measured, and therefore, in this context, what is being protected. And the unmeasured, the outside of the outer court, that is left out. The court of the Gentiles, the court of the nations, is, is left out of the measurement, for it is to be trampled underfoot for 42 months. The idea of 42 months is three and a half years. This is the idea that it is unprotected. It does not receive God's protection. So God protects his witnesses. God protects his witnesses. God protects us. Church, we are protected witnesses. Say with me, I am protected. I am protected by God. Now, protection sometimes doesn't look like we'd like it to, right? Uh, If I'm protected, then I shouldn't suffer any harm, right? No, that doesn't mean what that kind of protection means. It says it means that my soul is eternally protected by God and that nothing happens to me that God does not allow the enemy to do. That's how I am protected. Everything works in for God's glory and my sanctification, my good. Revelations 11.3 says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth is a garment of mourning. Uh, it's typically black. What is the idea behind 42 months, 1260 days, three and one half years, times, times, and half of times? So if you are a preterist, these times speak of the time of the siege of Jerusalem, which started in the fall of 66 AD and ended on, the, on September 26, 70 AD. However, the math works out for the time for the uh, siege 
works out to 48 months. If you're an idealist, this number symbolizes an end time period, end times time period, representing trial for the people of God and God's judgment on the whole world. So really, you interpret these numbers differently by which lens you wear. If you're a futurist, this time period represents the last half of Daniel's 70th week, which is the last half of the tribulation. For further discussion on Daniel's 70th week, listen to the podcast on YouTube that was posted on 913. There's a QR code for your convenience um, to scan and bookmark that for later. Also, since the times are dealing with a calendar, uh, there is a dense but interesting discussion on what calendar these calculations would have been made, would have, should have, or could have been made on. You can listen to that podcast here by scanning this QR code. Um, there's actually some interesting, we just assume that they function on all 365-day calendar, but they don't. Okay, so part of Israel uh, for many for, for years uh, functioned on a lunar calendar, and then certain sects like the Essenes functioned on a 364-day calendar. So um, interesting uh, discussion now on calendar. Now, why would the calendar make a difference? Because calendar... Uh, arrange days differently, and you would end up having dates land at different places depending on what calendar you're using. What are the speculations on the identity of the two witnesses? And we've discussed this um, on a Wednesday night study, so if you want the answer to the speculations of those identities, uh, then, you know, go ahead and scan that QR code and you can listen to that study on 927. The identity of the two witnesses is not critical to the meaning of the passage or the application of the passage, but being a witness is. We are all called to be a witness. You are called to be a witness. And whether you are actively being a witness or not, you are still a witness, for you bear the name of Jesus. So what does it mean to be a witness? Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when you, the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power and to be Jesus' witnesses. And Acts 4, 19 through 20 says, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than, than to God, you must judge. We ca- for we cannot speak for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. First John 1, 1 through 3 says, That which we have was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it, and witness to it, that would be another word that would be translated there, and proclaim to you eternal life, 
which was in the Father and was made manifest to you. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The Greek word for witness is martis, where we get our word martor in the modern day, and has come to meet one who dies for the belief. For some perspective, in 2022, according to Open Doors, 5,621 Christians gave their lives for Jesus. That's sobering. We are called, church, to be witnesses, to be a witness. And we're called to witness. A witness testifies to what he has seen and heard. We have seen the work of God in our lives. We each say, amen, he has saved me, or amen, he has healed me. And we have seen that work, and we are to testify, we're to witness about that, speak about that. We have heard the word of God preached to us. We've sat in church week after week and had the word of God preached to us. We, we've sat in our morning devotions and read the word of God, and now we are to proclaim the word of God. We are then to follow the apostles' examples and bear witness to what God has done and is doing despite the cost. I know it's intimidating. I know it is involved with a lot of fear because we are afraid of rejection, because we're afraid that somebody won't like us. But we are called to witness. And we don't need to be rude. That's a bad witness. We need to be winsome. We need to be loving. We need to be caring. But we do need to tell them that Jesus is coming again. We need to tell them that Jesus died for them and has made provision for them. Will we bear witness? Each of us have been placed in very different places. I can't be in your place, and you can't be in my place. But God has placed each of us in different places to be his witnesses. Will you be a good witness? Will you bear the name of Jesus well? Revelation 11.4 says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. What is meant by the two olive trees and the two lampstands? Zechariah 4, which we've read in the past, is the Old Testament background for the images of the olive trees and the lampstands. The symbol for the olive trees could very possibly be Israel. God calls Israel an olive tree in Jeremiah eleven sixteen. The Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit, but with the roar of great tempest, he will set fire to it, and its branches will be consumed. Paul walks off this identity of an olive tree in Romans 11 when he speaks of God's faithfulness. God is faithful to us, and he is faithful to Israel. He has made promises to them, and he will carry them out. You know, this morning, uh, the God, Hamas declared war, uh, attacked Israel, uh, a full-out 
uh, front and uh, actually broke through, uh, took hostages. It, it's a very sad, sad situation. Israel has uh, declared war on Gaza and Hamas, and is, there is a full-fledged war going on between those two uh, peoples right now. And I encourage you to pray for Israel. God is faithful to Israel. God will keep his promises to Israel. Um, and pray for Hamas. Pray for the Palestinians. Uh, it's a very difficult situation all the way around. And the only one who will ultimately solve that problem is Jesus when he returns to the Mount of Olives. And the Gentiles, they share in salvation. We share in the salvation, which was to the Jews first and then to us. Romans eleven seventeen says, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you, though although us talking about Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you all remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root who supports you. And then we skip down to verse twenty four. It says, for if you were cut off. From what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? You see, God is not done with the Jewish people. God has a plan for them, and the time of trial is really about the Jewish people. It's not about us, the church, but it's about the Jewish people. So Jesus already identified the symbolism of the lampstands in Revelation 1.20, where he said it was the seven churches. Here we, we only have two, two lampstands that he references. It's interesting that there were only two churches Smyrna and Philadelphia, who did not receive a rebuke from Jesus. So we have here then the two witnesses who are symbolized by two olive trees and two lampstands. So the two witnesses are possibly a Jew and a Gentile standing side by side, representing Israel and the church, unified in the testimony of Jesus as Messiah and Savior of the world, who is coming again to judge the living and the dead. How is your witness? How is our witness? Is it unifying to the body of Christ? Revelation 11, 5 through 6 says, And if anyone would harm them, the two witnesses, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So the Old Testament background for these miracles are in the events that happened, or events that happened in Moses and Elijah's ministry. 
This is part of the reason why some identify the two witnesses as Moses and Elijah. So what are their God-given powers? They have the power to breathe fire. And if you want to look at that reference for Elijah having power coming down from heaven, that's 2 Kings 1, 19 through 16. And then Jeremiah 15, 14 talks about God's word being a consuming fire in the mouth of his prophet. And then they have the power to stop the rain. And we see that Elijah stopped the rain for three and a half years. The powers to turn water to blood, and we see in Exodus 17, 7, that Moses turned water to blood. And then the power to strike with every kind of plague. And Exodus 7 through 10 would be all the 10 plagues that Egypt receives, um, and so this idea of plagues. And then also if you, there's correlation between uh, the trumpets um, and these uh, things happening uh, and also co- some correlation between the bulls, which are coming. So these powers are like reading a superhero comic, right? I mean, these are pretty supernatural things that they have. They don't have these powers in and of themselves because God empowers his witnesses to accomplish the mission. God empowers his witnesses The Holy Spirit abides in us, lives in us. He empowers us. He empowered these two guys, and he's empowering you in that area that you're in right now to be a witness to your neighbor, to be a witness to your co-worker, to be a witness to your friend, to be a witness to your family member. Matthew 28 18 through 20 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. God is the source of all power, and all authority has been given to him, Jesus. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is a job for all of us. And this word go here could be easily translated as you go. As you go about life, make disciples. As you go about life, be a witness. Talk about Jesus. Talk about what you've seen. Talk about what you've heard. The word preached to you. How God has changed your life. How God has changed others' lives teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As witnesses, we are not alone. He is with us. The Spirit of Christ dwells in us. We're not alone. We have no need to fear, for God is for us. We are empowered by Jesus to be a witness Empowered to be a witness. Let's be his witness. Let's be his witnesses in our homes. Let's be his witnesses in our neighborhoods. Let's be his witnesses at our workplace. 
in our village, in our county, and in our state. May we be his witnesses. Revelation eleven seven says, And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. I want you to pay close attention here. The, the enemy only succeeds when they are finished witnessing. We do not need to fear the enemy. We do not need to fear men. They only succeed when they are finishing witnessing and not before. God has a purpose and a plan for those witnesses. He has a purpose and a plan for us as witnesses. And we need to make witnessing a priority, the goal of our lives. It's not secondary. It's not third. Enjoying life is not our primary goal. No, bearing the name of Jesus is our primary goal. Being his witness. Being good witnesses for him. So the beast is invited in the figure of the Antichrist. And we're going to look more at him in chapter uh, 13. This is that beast that raises from the abyss. And you can go look back on a study on Wednesday night on the abyss if you want to know more about that. The two witnesses stood in Jerusalem bearing witness for their appointed time. And then they died, <laughs> right? When their witness was complete. Will we stand and bear witness? Will we live? Will we stand and bear witness in Papa? Will we stand and bear witness in Earlville? Will we stand and bear witness in Lee? Will we stand and bear witness in Rochelle, Waterman, Chabana, America, wherever we live, New York, Washington, Arizona, will we stand and bear witness to what God has done in our lives and to what we've heard the word of God preach to us? Revelation eleven nine says, for three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and language and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because those two prophets had been torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and a great fear fell on all those who saw this. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. We might fear rejection, and I think most of us do. We might fear death, and some of us do. But yet, we're not to fear 
we're not to fear those things, for God is for us. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? See, the ones who need to fear are those who reject the message of life, those who reject the witness that Christ came, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried, and on the third day he rose again, validating that he has given us life everlasting and that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And are you ready for his coming? That is what we bear witness to. And that we should not fear to bear witness to that. They should feel if they reject the message. Sadly, often our witness is not received. The world celebrates the witness's death. They give gifts to one another. They're so excited that they are gone. Yet death is not the end for the two witnesses, is it? But the beginning. And death is not the end for us. It is the beginning. This is why we have no need to fear death. For as the witnesses are raised and ascend to heaven, we too will be raised and ascend to heaven. You see, God raises his witnesses to eternal life and judges those who reject their testimony. Will you bear witness to what God has done? Will you bear witness to what you have heard? Will you choose to be his witness? Revelation eleven fourteen says, The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. The death of the two witnesses concludes the second woe of God's judgment. How will we respond to his judgment? Will we be his witness? Will we speak of his judgments in our lives as right and true and holy? Revelation eleven fifteen says, Then the seventh trumpet, seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So here, we have a clear example of already not yet tension in which we live. You see, God has already conquered sin. God has already conquered the devil. God already rules the world, but not yet. It is not in its fullness. The world has become Jesus' kingdom, but the fullness of the kingdom has not come in. The wrath of God is not finished. It will be finished with the seven bulls of Revelation 15.1. They have not been poured out, but the wrath of God has come, but it has more to come. The kingdom of God has come, but its fullness is not here already, but not yet. Church, we bear witness that Jesus' death and resurrection have, has destroyed the devil who has the power of death. And that Jesus has set free all those who believe. If you believe, you are set free from sin and death. That is a promise that you can claim and hold. 
We also believe and we profess and bear witness to he's coming again to rule all things forever. And he rules things now, but there will be a time when he rules all things with a rod of iron and that all things are made right. So it's a tension of already, but not yet. Will we bear witness? Will we bear witness to what we've seen and heard? Will we bear witness to his changing of our lives, to the word of God preached to us? Revelation eleven sixteen says, And the 24 elders set, who sit on the throne before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying of the destroyers of earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen with his, in his temple. There were flashes of lightning and rumbles, peals of thunder and earthquakes, and heavy hills. The reference uh, that, that these uh, song and this poem is, is written from is Psalm 2. It says in Psalm 2, 1, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree thy Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and with rejoicing, with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. The refuge that we take in him is in the cross and in his work done for us. And we take refuge in him by confessing Jesus as Lord and believing in our hearts that God raised him from the dead and we become in him, refuged to him, saved by him. So will we bear witness to his reign with hearts of thanksgiving? Our witness, it will not be well received for the nation's rage, but God's wrath but that is God's problem, which he solves in his coming wrath, which ends with the judgment of the dead and the destruction of the destroyers, death, Hades, and the devil. The Lord rewards all his witnesses, both small and great, with the fullness of his presence. That peek into heaven 
and seeing the, the Ark of the Covenant, reminding of God's redemption and God's mercy seat, and reminding us that God is going to dwell with us. He will no longer be in heaven, but he's coming to earth, and he will be with us, and we will be with him, both small and great. We will all receive his reward. So I challenge each of you to be his good witness. As we go about life, he has given us. Wherever we're at, may we be his good witnesses, bearing his name. If you've confessed Jesus as Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you bear his name. You are his witness. Or we can do that well, or we can do that poorly. And I encourage you to do it well. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you. We bless you for your goodness. We thank you that you have called us to be your witnesses. May we testify of your goodness. May we testify of your grace. May we testify of that you are coming again. And may we rest in knowing that you've empowered us to do this. And we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.